0: This is Women Behind Wool, a podcast introducing you to the female face of the Australian wool industry. Today's guest is Pip Smith from Wellington in central west New South Wales. Pip and her husband Norm absolutely love the fibre they produce. They believe in their wool and... They're so proud of how they manage their farm to get the best for their animals. These guys are holistic farmers. Uh, They use SRS genetics, soft rolling skin genetics, and they don't mules their sheep. And after many conversations, many overseas trips, many phone calls, much research and much testing, the Smith family's been able to not only sell their wool directly to a processor in China, but they've also negotiated to receive a portion of that processed wool back to their own farm which pip then has turned into scarves and baby wraps and beanies and so on using artisans here in australia the path for them to get to this point was did take them a long time there were many hurdles um, but now that Pip has broken the back of the system, so to speak, she is so happy to share her contacts and her learnings and to generally help anyone who's interested.
1: Hi Sky, my name's Pip Smith. I live at Glenwood on a property called Glenwood with my husband Norman and my five children Chloe. Amber, Maggie, Will and Daisy, and my beautiful dad, which most people call Marto. He's 81 and he's living with us at the moment. Um, We live on a property 30 kilometres northeast of Wellington, uh, Glenwood Merinos. It's um, in central west New South Wales. We have merino sheep. We produce uh, fine merino wool. With our average micron is approximately 80, 18.4 microns um, and we produce beautiful merino wool, yeah. So just tell me a little bit about how long you and Norm have lived there. Norm and I have lived here since we've been married, so that's 25 years. We were both born and bred in Wellington. Um, I grew up about 20 kilometres uh, west as the crow flies on a mixed um, farm corporate Bedangra Station with my parents and my siblings. Norm's family have been on Glenwood since the late 1800s. Our children are fourth, one, two, three, fifth generation growing up on Glenwood. So did you two know of each other growing up? We've got photos of us. We're four days apart. Um, Norman's uh, father is godfather to my brother-in-law his brother um my father actually lived here for when he was young his mother was the governess for norm's um, aunts and uncles until she died and he became a ward of the state and he was adopted by my grandparents who were best friends with the smiths when he was 10 years old and we've grown up all our lives together we were childhood sweethearts and we didn't marry straight out of school but we married when we were about 28 yeah so we've got photos of us from babies all through our life (laughs) oh that
0: is such an amazing story this is not even why I'm here to talk to you but it just (laughs) shows that you've got a deep connection to where you live
1: it does and my father sadly my mum hasn't been well and we lost my nephew in a tragic accident in February and uh, my father my mum couldn't look after my dad anymore and I couldn't bear him to be in the nursing home and I'm an ex-registered nurse and blah 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 so I decided to have him come and live with us after a family meeting and because he's been such a part of all our lives especially my husband Norm too growing up he was of course he can so it's, it's like a full circle he's come back and he's literally sleeping in the room next door to he where he lived when he was eight years old with his maternal mother oh my goodness did he love Mm. sheep too he was a mixed farmer so he had sheep cattle cropping so not 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 an expert at the beautiful merino wool like my Norman and his family were like so Norman's what they call a grazier and my dad was like a farmer. So there's a slight difference.
0: Yes. And so for people that don't know, a grazier usually is looking after sheep and livestock yeah. and a farmer Mast. is farming is farming crops. land. Yes. So they're yeah. usually crops. So things like
1: yeah.
0: grain and barley and wheat nola. and yeah.
1: oats. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your journey, Pip, coming into the Smith family
1: and And what you've taken on in a wool sense? (laughs) Um, Well, marrying a grazier is a lot different to living in a farming family because graziers, they go out when the sun comes up and they come back when the sun goes down. Um, Whereas farming families, you know, they can be on tractors and headers all hours of the night, carting um, wheat and oats and, you know, sowing and stripping. Uh, so marrying a grazier was lovely because my husband came in for dinner. <laughs> so that was a nice thing to get used to because you get to see your husband throughout the year more than probably a farmer does. Um, so growing, moving to Glenwood uh, was lovely. I Like I said, I was uh, born and bred in Wellington, grew up with Norm. Uh, so Glenwood was part of my life before I married him. Um, to live in the main house, we, we moved into a cottage first up and then uh, when my twins were one, they're now 21, so 20 years ago we moved into the main house because I had four children under three and the cottage was a little small and I was going a little bit cray-cray. Um, so that changed my life enormously moving into the big house. Um, I've been very busy looking after my family but I always help Norm whenever I can. I'm very grateful to the fact that he allows me to probably, I guess, put our family first. So the children come first, so the ballet, the soccer, the football, the swimming, all of that. And he has employs other people to do the main work. I'm, I know there are many wives out there who have to do both. So I have the option, but I do love, um, working on the farm, helping with the sheep, or whatever's needed. Um, so, marrying Norm, I, I never thought I would live in Wellington. <laughs> being born and bred here, um, and I, it was tough when we first got married because we were on a, a minimum wage, um, as which is pretty normal. Um, and I found it very hard with four small children and uh, living in a cottage and we went into a drought, it was pretty tough. Um, so we had a lot of debt. We had a lot of, um, we were going to take over the farm. Norm's two brothers had decided not to come back to the land. So we went through a family succession and when you first married, to hear the kind of family succession, you've got to pay the brothers out look after your in-laws, which absolutely I'm all up for. But the mind boggles when you're just starting out and you think, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? Um, So we were encouraged to go and do a course called Holistic Management. And whilst we did the course, uh, we did the course before the twins were born. So like I said, the twins were 21. So we did the course about 22 years ago. Uh, it was a 10-day course, three days, four days, four days, or whatever, its up to 10, maybe a bit longer. And throughout that course, I realised how blessed I was to be married to someone who loves what they do. Norman loves the land. He loves the animals. He loves sheep and wool. Um, and he loves getting up every day. He has a wonderful work ethic. So I realised... It really didn't matter where we lived as long as we were together and that he was happy, which then made me happy because we are able to provide for our children. Uh, So we did the course, Holistic Management, which changed a lot because it it taught us how to look after the land, the people, the animals, um, to maintain ground cover. We were always looking to be last people into drought and the first people out so by practicing holistic management it's a a fellow called Alan Savory from South Africa came up or not didn't come up with it well I guess he did his findings were that if you treated nature and the land like it should be then you can maintain it as it should be and you can regenerate the land so that's looking at um, grazing the paddocks for very short periods of time. So you might graze for three to five days and then you move your stock on and you're resting the paddocks for up to 120 days. So that way you're not grazing the land down to bare ground. You're, you're, you're leaving behind before it gets bare. So then it's rested and it recovers. So our aim is to maintain 100% ground cover so to capture every drop of rain that falls and soaks into the ground and builds up the water in the underwater table, the water table. Um, and that's proved really um, beneficial for us and it has worked really well here on Glenwood. We were able to... Um, look at what we had in front of us, or or Norman looks at what he's got in front of us every day, and he can look at a paddock as he's moving sheep out and think, do I have enough grass? Will I have enough grass to feed these animals in 120 days when they come back? And if if we don't, because of lack of rain, we start to destock. And having gone through one of the worst droughts recently, uh, we we're basically down to our core breeding stock because we run a sheep stud. So we can run, when I first married Norm and we were, weren't practising holistic management, we are on 7,000 acres, we could run up to 12,000 sheep. Um, but now since we've been practising holistic management, we run probably about 5,000 sheep plus lambs and cattle depending upon the season. So when you leave a paddock and you're looking at it, Norman looks and thinks, will I have enough feed in 120 days when I come back? Or if we don't get enough rain, we won't. That's sort of so like you're looking for three months in advance. So if he thinks that we can't, then we start to destock. We destock the cattle. We destock the weathers. We destock surplus animals and we keep our core breeding stock. So then we've always got enough feed for the animals when they come back.
0: What has that allowed you to achieve in your wool operation?
1: So basically holistic management has allowed us to have a really good lifestyle. We're always um, looking to minimising risks. By looking after our sheep, we can then produce the most beautiful wool. And we do produce beautiful wool in 25 years I've been married to Norman we have gone to breeding a a sheep called SRS so that's soft rolling skin a genetic not a genetic but a way of breeding sheep that you're getting rid of the wrinkle on the sheep and you're using the plain bodied sheep to produce the the most wool and fiber the fibers of the wool that you can Um, this was by a fellow called dr jim watts who sadly passed away a couple of years ago but but producing a a plain-bodied sheep we were able to stop mulesing sheep in 2003 which again we produce a beautiful wool the soft rolling skin produces a wool that's um the fiber is straight not straight it has the crimp in it but it's not tangled so um, it processes really well its affinity to dye is Magnificent, and we're told this by the people that buy our wool and process our wool all the time. And even for knitting, when we've got into love merino and knitting our own yarn, it, um, knitters say it's the best yarn they've ever worked with. In an
0: emotional sense, I would love to know from you when you started to get an itch to see your own beautiful wool back in your own hands.
1: I guess when the kids were young, I used to travel once a year with Norm to Newcastle to the um, wool sales to see our wool being sold and it would sit in these big rooms. But it was so sad because that was it. You never saw it again. And I I guess that was when the, so 20 years ago, I guess. um, So I said, wouldn't it be great if we could produce something out of our wool? Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. I don't know how we're going to do that, all that jazz. And so I looked into it a little bit and was a bit daunted by it all. And then probably, I guess, in 2012, we were working with a company called Wool Arena in Forbes. It's a family-owned company, Warwick Rolfe and his family, and they produce next to skin wear and beautiful. When they started buying Glenwood Merino to tell the story, Farm to Fabric, um, we were working with them. We would go to... Um, things like the mudgy Field Days take our sheep and our wool, so we could educate the public from the sheep to the wool to the fabric. And in, in amongst that time of working with woolerina, I I thought, oh, when I started to learn, and I was a little bit inspired, and um, thought, oh, maybe I could do something. Um, so together with my brother-in-law Ian, that's mom's brother, and Norman, and myself, and Warwick assisted us. We we got a couple of other people, and we sat down together and thought, can we do this? It took a few years. We launched Love Merino in 2016. It's not an easy process to take your wool from the farm and then to have it processed. It has to be processed so it goes from the greasy wool off the sheep's back, has to be carded and combed so it's like washed in a big washing machine and then it's brushed back into, into a top like it looks like a big ice cream cone. So the fibres are all brushed back into um, alignment. And then from the top, it gets um, spun into yarn, which is like a big cone of of thread. And then from yarn, it gets knitted into fabric or into a product. So to do that 20 years ago, you could do it in Australia, but uh, all the manufacturing went overseas. So we looked at, there are boutique mills. Unfortunately, to do that, you're not guaranteed that your product or your, your wool will be processed by itself and free from contamination. So we take our wool at the moment and have it processed in Malaysia or China, sadly. So we went to China to have a look, a company called Janelle, who have been out to Glenwood a couple of times, which was with an interpreter because they'd heard about my husband Norman was Farmer of the Year in 2011. He does a really wonderful job practising holistic management, looking after the people, the land, the animals. He also produces this magnificent fibre who he, and he's been recognised for that. This company, along with many companies, we've had visitors at Glenwood from Patagonia to Van Houston to Muji. Um, Anyway, Janelle Janelle came out to see us and they wanted to buy all our wool because they loved our story. They loved um, how we looked after the land, the people, the animals and how magnificent our wool was. So we went over to have a look. You know, I went over there with the idea of, oh, maybe we could buy a carding machine and bring it to Australia and we'll set it up in Wellington and get a grant from the government and work with other people who want to do garments out of their wool and, you know, create some employment Whatever, but when we got there, well, I was just so blown away with the company over there. They just so professional, uh, clean. They have an education system. They work together with AWI and, and lots of different people throughout the world. They look after their staff. You could literally eat off the floor. The machines were brand new. It just blew our mind. Um, so at now they're able to take our whole, all our wool from the year. Which was how much? So each year we produce about 200 bales of wool. So in one bale of wool is 200 fleeces approximately. And Because we're not mules, we get a premium. So they then on-sell our wool to companies, like many companies now, are looking for unmules wool. Uh, So I then bring back a very small amount of that to Australia, I'll bring it back as yarn knit products for love merino.
0: How many others do you know of that do a similar thing? Oh, I think there's
1: oh, many, many now, especially in the last decade, and many of the agencies who purchase wool from wool farmers like Fox and Lily Elders, Woolmark. They um, collect, you know, groups of farmers who produce Unmules wool and sell to big companies, not just Janelle. Janelle is the biggest spinning company in the world. There are a lot of people that do it. I don't know about how many people actually then produce their own products farm to fabric. There are a few I know. There are many companies that pr- produce beautiful Australian merino products, but I don't know that many that can say it's from their farm.
0: Yes, how much inquiry out of interest do you get from the sort of average farmer who is keen and wanting to do something similar to to what you've done in that they're just turning mm-hmm. wool from their own farm into products, their own products which they can sell?
1: Probably every three months or so someone will contact me ring me or send me an email or a text and then I speak to them about what I'm doing and how they might like to do it I just had a lady last week from Western Australia who has a young family they're wool producers and she'd like to make baby blankets and I don't want to deter anyone so I I give them as much information as I can and as many contacts I try to who to speak to I often will put them on to my husband because he's a lot more technical in the His knowledge in the wool, we have a wonderful contact called Jimmy Jackson who arranged for us to go to China, to Chenow with AWI. Jimmy would be about 60 and has worked all over the world with AWI now, works privately, um, helping people like ourselves and big companies, educating people and helping them produce their own products. Yes, so I do talk to quite a few people or if I can't help them, I... um, give them context to someone that I hope can help them.
0: Do you believe that it is easier to establish something like this now as compared to when you first started the process?
1: It's not an easy process. There's a lot of, <laughs> it's a big chain to follow. So I don't know if it would be easier, I guess if you had the right contacts and spoke to the right people, yes. And you weren't starting from the beginning.
0: So tell me, Pip, what is The biggest hurdle?
1: The biggest hurdle is getting your wool processed off the sheep's back and and getting it back to yarn. So I I could have everything done in China and sell it for half the price, but then I don't have a story. So I choose to bring it back as yarn, have it knitted in Melbourne, dyed in Sydney, or some I do some dyeing myself here. So that's where the cost comes in. But if you buy Merino, it's a piece that will last you forever. You don't need to throw it out you know it, it is a little bit more expensive but it's um it's a piece you can have forever if you look after it I think the hurdle I I was hoping actually during this pandemic i kind of got a little bit excited because I said, well oh, maybe we could bring some manufacturing back to Australia maybe a group of people could I know there are very a lot of people in just interested over the years I've talked to many people and we all, have all said wouldn't it be great if we could do it here in Australia and I think if we could, like they did 20 years ago, there'd probably be a lot more Australian Merino products. Time management is a big thing. <laughs> big yeah. thing when you've got a family, that's, that's a massive, um, especially if you don't have the capital to employ people to, I don't know, clean your house and cook your dinner and, or help you within the business. You know, you've got to juggle everything like everyone else has to.
0: So tell me a bit more about Love Merino and what, what you do with it.
1: When I was had young children, I always wanted to um, obviously use wool. It was very hard to. Hendrina was a good company in Australia that I found. But I ended up using uh, Merino Kids and um, just loved um, New Zealand Merino Kids. Um, and I guess that's where I got the name I decided to start with just products that didn't have sizes. And the idea of that was if it didn't work, well, you know, you could sell down and get out. I wasn't in the retail. I've never done fashion or in retail. I was a registered nurse, midwife, baby health sister. Uh, So my expertise wasn't in that. So the idea was to start with something like a scarf. I can produce, say, 200 scarves and dye them in 10 different colours, and which I did. So I, I had different colours and designs. Uh, the designs and colours that didn't sell, I just sold down. I'd have maybe 10 of each. If, if they didn't really sell, I wouldn't re- I wouldn't die again or produce them again. I looked at the colours that were selling. I looked at people who were in the industry who would give me ideas as to the upcoming colours, classic colours. I looked at other websites, other... People who produce scarves or wraps looked at their classic range. And as Love Merino grew, I then decided, because I I think I had someone say, oh, do you do Merino wraps or pashminas? So I, I had some Merino wraps sampled, put them up to see if they'd sell, and they did. So now I produce scarves and wraps. And then I I had some fabric, so then I thought I'll try baby wraps because they're always a beautiful gift and beautiful to have babies in, and and they sold very well. I looked at uh, merino throws, you know, for your bed or your couch or whatever, and I made some out of a jersey fabric. They, They all sold. I only made a small amount, beautifully dyed by shibori, but the cost is a little prohibitive so, I'm not sure. I'm looking at another uh, um, sample to look at because to, to produce the throw, it was a big throw, the size of a single bed. But the cost for me, you know, retail cost was about, you know, up to six, between six and seven hundred dollars. And some people don't blink an eye when they buy it. But others who would love a merino throw, it's just cost prohibitive. So, I'm looking at producing a, a throw that is, is more available at a lower cost price, cost point, I should say, if I, if I can. The baby wraps were wonderful. I've sold out of my baby wraps, so I'm going to make them again. I've produced some beanies and neck warmers, and they've been really popular. The beanies are so beautiful, and I've had a great interest, even from a company in Bathurst, during winter, uh, for their workers, that they can wear them under their hard hats, they don't even know they're wearing them because they're so thin and warm. But they're a double layer, and the neck warmers are. I've had um, interest in um, people, the skiers, because they can be worn as a neck warmer, and then you, you you can turn them, twist them in, you know, in three, and pull one end down over the other, and it turns into a beanie. So they're quite versatile. They're, they've been quite popular. They're made out of a jersey fabric. So again, I have to get another roll of jersey fabric made, which isn't an issue. It's just, you know, working out what you can do and can't do each season.
0: And what about Australian retailers? What do you one of our things at Women Behind Wool is to encourage more people to start conversations with their retailers about buying more Australian wool. What do you think? We might be able to to do to sort of start conversations with them about selling more australian
1: wool and wool products well apart from the benefits of wearing wool the temperature regulation the uv resistance it's long lasting it's soft and comfortable it's it's a natural fire retardant like if something catches fire if wool catches fire you you know it's very low retardant meaning you can put it out very quickly it's Australian merino wool—it's well, unique. The other thing about it is that if you dispose of it, it'll it'll decompose in in a number of years in the soil, whereas synthetics don't. Wool we'll can act like a fertilizer, goes back into the earth, building up the nutrients again and the nitrogen again. And well, it's a natural product. I don't know why you wouldn't want to wear wool. It's so easy to wear. It's soft against the skin. It's warm. It's comfortable has so many benefits um and
0: yeah it's Australian. Pip what's your favorite thing job within
1: the wool production cycle? (laughs) Like my favorite part is when I receive my samples back from the knitter the knitter in uh, Melbourne Manny at AMB Knitwear it's a family-owned company and I can show him things that I like, you know, uh, pieces that I like. I said, can we do this? He'll go, no, can we do this? He'll go, yes, I can do anything just about Pip. So when I get that, it's very exciting. I've just received ponchos and some new neck warmers and scarves that are just beautiful in their natural state, even before they're dyed. I guess that's my favorite because you you just hold it. It's so soft and and, and you just like, it's just beautiful. How good. Well, Pip, it's
0: been really, really interesting to hear about what you've achieved there at Glenwood and a bit about your story. So thanks so much for for taking the time to speak with us on Women Behind Wool. Thank you, Sky, very much. Thank you so much for getting on board with the Women Behind Wool Venture. Penny and I have been blown away by how many people we've been able to reach through these stories. We've loved people getting in contact with us just to say that they're listening or that they're seeing our films. We've loved all the guest suggestions, the questions and just the insights into your own lives within the wool industry. Please keep them coming. We are coming to the end of this first series of women behind wool we do have another episode coming out next week but we are pretty sure that this won't be the end we've got so many more stories to tell but we're just in the process of working out how best to do it at the moment the best way for you to keep across things is to follow us on instagram at women behind wool and to subscribe to this podcast so that any new stories will automatically just land in your feed above all thanks for tuning in